0: This is Democracy,
1: a podcast about the people of the United States, a podcast about citizenship, about engaging with politics and the world around you,
0: a podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues
2: and how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to discuss the recent history of the civil war in Syria. And this is a topic that deserves attention in its own right because of the importance of this country, the atrocities committed, and the lingering effects. But we're not only going to talk about what happened in Syria and what continues to happen in Syria, but the effects of that civil war and the violence, in particular the Russian intervention in that civil war, and its influence upon the war in, in Ukraine right now. The ways in which events in Syria are, in some ways, a preview To what we're all watching in Ukraine and the ways in which the experiences in Syria have influenced the Russian military and other actors uh, in the terrible war that we're all witnessing in Ukraine. Uh, That began about five weeks ago with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're joined by, I think, the person who knows more about what is happening in Syria than almost any other scholar in the United States. Uh, She's also one of the most interesting and exciting uh, writers on foreign policy and international affairs today. Uh, and if you haven't uh, learned about her work before, you should look it up. Uh, her name is Emily Whalen.
0: And uh,
2: Emily, thank you for <laughs> joining us.
0: Yeah, thank you for that very generous in- introduction and for having me.
2: Well, I've only just begun to introduce you, uh, <laughs> Emily. Uh, Emily is a historian of U.S. foreign policy and of the Middle East. Uh, She earned her Ph.D. in history at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, I had the great fortune of being her Ph.D. advisor, but I often felt she was my Ph.D. advisor, (laughs) in fact. Uh, She's now a postdoctoral fellow at our fantastic Clements Center for National Security. She's also been an Ernest May fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School and the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. She has been a Smith-Richardson Foundation pre-doctoral fellow at Yale's International Security Studies Program. And she's been affiliated, and this is probably most relevant for our discussion today, with American Universities uh, of Beirut's Center for Arab and Middle Eastern Studies. Emily has worked as a historical consultant for the East-West Institute, which is an international non-governmental think tank specializing in Track 2 diplomacy. And her writing appears in many publications. Her book manuscript, which uh, will be out soon, we hope, is the Lebanese Wars, uh, really the, the first major international history of these wars, at least written in English. Uh, and uh, that's something we're all looking forward to. Um, before we turn to our discussion with Emily, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary Suri's uh, poem for us today. What is the title of your poem, Zachary. Shadows at the Door. Let's uh, learn about the shadows.
1: Where is it that the killers learn to kill while we're sleeping in the quiet of a windowsill? And while we wait in dreams of snow, they are in the icy street. And when we're late and knocking on the door, they trace faces in the sleet that were once but are no more. I'd like to think that they are haunted when their rifling is done, And they wait on a cold porch and watch the rivers run. Inside, behind them in the stifling light, someone cooks them dinner and reads to them at night. But they are seeing faces in the shadows at the door. And we are there in suits and laces, prancing on the floor. So hold it tight, don't let it go. For even in the desert, sometimes there is snow. And sometimes even in the cavern with a lantern and just a plum, sometimes there is justice. Often there is some. Where is it then the killers learn to kill so cold? In the streets of your city, they have overturned the stones. They have opened all the sewers just outside your door. And here in our town, we're already buried because we've seen it all before.
2: Zachary, you might have outdone
1: yourself this week.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh,
1: what is your poem about? My poem is really about trying to understand the psychology of war, more specifically, the, the soldiers, the mercenaries who go from one conflict zone, from one war zone to another, and, and, and really how they live with themselves, but also the devastating, uh, the devastating trauma uh, and death that they leave behind.
2: Well, I think that's a perfect spot to turn to Emily. Um, there's clearly been a lot of death and destruction and trauma in uh, Syria and in surrounding areas um, for at least the last decade. But maybe if we could start around 2015, how should how should we understand? Yeah, uh, what happened in Syria beginning around that time?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I. We'll focus mostly, of course, post 2015. But I think it's worth reiterating that you know, war uh, broke out in Syria in 2011 in conjunction with a lot of other popular protest movements um, in the Middle East at the time. The war was begun by the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad because you know the protesters were really calling more for government reforms, and he was the one who really saw this as a as an existential threat to his regime. So um, the the war broke out um, in. Sort of in his resistance to any kind of political reform, and uh, I it continued on, it, it was pretty touch and go for the Assad regime, I think, all the way up until probably about 2014, 2015. And 2015 is when the uh, that when Putin and the Russian military began the Russian mission in Syria. And the mission in Syria, uh, was sort of a, nominally a mission to conduct airstrikes against. Um, ISIL. So this is the is- Islamic State in the Levant. And that, um, which you and your listeners may remember, was sort of a, a version or a sect of um, ISIS, which was um, the sort of extremist terrorist organization that sprang up in Iraq um, in the, around the same time. So... Uh, So we have, you know, the Russian military, again, this is sort of a nominally an airstrike mission. It still remains nominally an airstrike mission, but by about 2016, it's, you know, it's pretty clear from reports on the ground that there are Russian troops in Syria. And in particular, in addition to Russian troops, there's also a, a pretty significant presence from Russian mercenaries like the Wagner Group and that they are conducting pretty robust operations on behalf of the Assad government. So what I would say the two kind of key features of the Russian military mission in Syria were its brutality and the distortion of truth that went alongside it. Uh, And I can talk a little bit about that some more, or I don't know if you want to, if you have any questions about anything I've laid out so
2: far. No, I uh... I have so many questions, and I'm <laughs> yeah. so glad you're with us to, to help <laughs> us understand this. But, well, for many of us, even those of us who follow these issues closely, Emily, it's it's very hard to know what's going on, because yeah. obviously there's a lot happening, mm-hmm. um, and um, most of us don't have the language skills and the historical background in that region yeah. that you have. So, yeah. so in terms of the brutality, I mean, mm-hmm. many uh, outside observers are accustomed, unfortunately, to watching images of brutal military um, conflicts of one kind or another in the Middle East. What yeah. made what made the Russian intervention particularly brutal for you to single it out that way?
0: Sure thing. And I would actually add um, to what you just said, where it's hard to know what's going on. That is actually a tactic of war. So it's not just... Um, you don't, it's, it's hard to know what's going on, not simply because it's, you know, people are a little bit accustomed to seeing violent images coming out of the Middle East and because of the language barrier, but because that's a, that is a deliberate tactic specifically by the Russian regime, uh, to make it hard to know what's going on and, and the Syrian regime as well. Um, so what I would say for the, in terms of brutality, you know, the, at the very, the there is a Russian general, Alexander Dvorne- Dvornikov. I'm probably butchering that name. Um, no, that but, was good. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> so he was—he led the beginnings of the Russian mission. And what I would say distinguished the um, the brutality were, you know, tactics and some and some of the material that were used. So you have thermobaric weapons, which people often um, confuse with white phosphorus bombs. Thermobaric weapons are much more brutal uh, and much sort of hotter. Uh, and um, you have the use of cluster munitions and things like that. So things that go against the um, against the Geneva Conventions of War. And then also wh- what they were targeting. So again, this is nominally, you know, the, the Russian regime and the Assad regime are claiming that these are strikes against extremist terrorist factions like ISIL, like the al-Nusra Front, um, which were, there were, and there were in the opposition, some extremist terrorist factions. But um, they're blending those missions against these terrorist organizations with strikes against civilian targets. So hitting things like schools, hitting things like hospitals. They're pioneering or I don't know if pioneering is the right word, but they're really um, using what's called a double tap strike, which is when um, you hit a target and then wait for, you know, um, Really, sort of you wait for the emergency personnel and, and volunteers to come in to try to take people out of rubble or um, or to, to tend to people's wounds, and then you hit it again. So you're hitting people um, who are trying to help others. So that's the kind of brutality that we're talking about in Syria. And this was pioneered by um, General Dornikov in Syria in 2015, 2016, and has continued since he's since he has left the command of, um, of the Syrian mission.
1: I, I hate to um, make such a Apocalyptic analogy, almost. Mm-hmm. But how should we understand the logic of the Russian presence in the Middle East? Is it is it similar in some ways then to the the Nazi involvement in the Spanish Civil War as a sort of practice round for Russian expansion? Maybe.
0: Yeah, I you know I don't know that that's a terrible. I think that's not a terrible uh, comparison. Uh, I think you know historically Russia has been an ally for the Assad regime. And I want to be careful here to to emphasize the Assad regime is not the same thing as Syria. There are many Syrians who do not support Assad, quite quite a few. And um, it's really been, you know, the Assad's came to power in around 1970, and were historically really supported by the Soviet Union. So there is a long history here. And it's a history that has its roots in that Soviet moment that we also know is so evocative for Putin, and so important to his psychology. So I think, you know, I think that There's a a sense of Russian support of Syria as kind of almost an imperial legacy, if that makes sense, that this is sort of a moment when the Soviet Union had a great deal of power and they were sort of seen as equals to the United States on the world stage. And so by reinforcing his support for the Assad's, Putin is really enacting um, his vision of what Russian power is going to look like in the world. Does that make sense?
1: I think so, thank you.
2: And, yeah. and and emily, it's it's striking what you just explained so brilliantly. Um, Putin claims in both this Middle Eastern space and then, of course, uh, in uh, Eastern Europe and elsewhere, he claims he's preserving Russian civilization. Hmm. but what but what you've described is is really extreme destruction, which includes mm-hmm. not only mass death, but uh, the destruction of economies, the, the, the rendering mm-hmm. of, of resources and wealth unusable yes. in many cases. So, so what is the logic of that?
0: The logic of uh, the material destruction? I mean, I think that, you know, you, you can look at – I think I want to add another sort of element of destruction in there, which is the destruction of trust. So you know the yes. double traps, the double tap strikes that i uh, I talked about. And then also when you are creating an environment that is quite literally almost unlivable, people become focused on survival and you cannot focus on things like, you know your political rights, on altruism, on, on um, you know the things that make us human. You're simply focused on covering sort of what um, Walter Benjamin and other philosophers call mere life, your bare life, your sort of animal basic needs for surviving, and um, in destroying. An environment in which people can flourish and be sort of full human beings, Putin will, Putin sort of reinforces, and Assad as well, this is something that the Assad regime supports, reinforces people's dependency on the regime for basics like security, and, um, and, you know, keeping, keeping themselves safe. Never mind that the regime is the greatest threat to their safety. But when you, when you Make people afraid, and you destroy social trust. Then, um, then they're easier to control,
2: right? And they're forced to cling to the very source of their suffering, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And and that extends, by the way, beyond the. This is not a specifically Russian philosophy. This is not specifically Syrian philosophy, right? As Zach mentioned, there is historical antecedents to this. This is something that extends beyond borders. I mentioned that one of the signature features of the Russian campaign in Syria has been, you know, an almost industrial strength disinformation campaign. So this is... Something that the Russians, you know, tested out in Syria starting around 2013 and really culminating in 2015, 2016 in advance of their, um, you know, disinformation cam- inv- campaigns and their involvement in the US um, elections in 2016. You started to see when the Russians got involved in Syria, um, Sort of a lot of allegations about particular groups like the White Helmets, which is a group of Syrian um, volunteers who would go in. They would they they were very important in exposing the war crimes of the Assad regime. They were also emergency services. A lot of them died in these double trap trips I'm I'm describing. Um, but there was a, a coordinated campaign, online campaign, implying that they were linked with Al Qaeda, and that really that story came out of Russia. Um, and it was one of the first times we've seen this really, like I said, industrial strength. This, information campaign, so that so spreading that mistrust beyond the borders of Syria and Russia has also been a part of this.
2: So it's not only destroying um, people, cities, uh, resources; uh, it's destroying any semblance of truth.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah,
2: a- and and what about the use of chemical weapons, uh, mm-hmm. which which was in the news for a short while and then again was almost forgotten.
0: Yeah. So this was sort of the first. Um, I would say kind of moment when we started to see Russia take a more robust stance in Syria, the, it was in 2013 that the, that the exposure of Assad's use of chemical weapons in certain suburbs of Damascus was, um, was sort of broadcast to the world. The reaction was pretty immediate and there was a sort of universal condemnation, but there wasn't much done beyond that. And one of the kind of, there's a, you know, there was a lot of conversation from the Obama administration about potentially becoming more involved in Syria. There was a lot of domestic resistance to that. Um, and the, s- the solution that was kind of struck upon was by Sergei Lavrov, um, the then Russian foreign minister, I believe, was that, the, that Russia would help coordinate would sort of act as Syria's guarantor um, and and help coordinate the removal of the chemical weapons by the Assad Assad regime's chemical weapons um, in coordination with the United Nations and the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Um, And uh, and they did this. They conducted these operations in September 2013, uh, starting in September 2013 into October 2013. And um, for what we know, most of the chemical weapons were removed and destroyed. Significantly, though, I would say um, that in there were certain certain sort of ingredients of other chemical weapons that were not covered in this um, in this agreement. So there has been evidence of the uh, Assad regime's continued use of chemical weapons since this moment. But I think this I could I see that moment in twenty thirteen as kind of when you start to see a more uh, a bolder Russian presence in Syria. If that makes sense.
1: And for many of our listeners who probably aren't very well informed on the current state of politics and uh, the regime in Syria. Uh, What is the sort of, I don't know if you could call it stalemate or the sort of status quo that is now being reinforced?
0: Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's really, it's concerning. (laughs) I would say Syria is pretty much a de facto um, partitioned state with certain areas of the, of the nation under the control of the Assad regime, certain areas that are under the control, mostly around Idlib, that are under the control of the sort of, of the rebel groups still. um, And there's some concern about that actually in light of the new um, developments in the Ukraine war. And then I would say other parts of Syria are under, um, under control of, you know, Pretty lawless groups and mafias and things like that. So it is a de facto, I would say, partitioned state that it is a locus of the international, sort of international illegal trade. So you have an enormous trade in illegal um, drugs, weaponry, and other sorts of unsavory things going through Syria. And um, and, and I would say actually that this is a pretty tolerable solution for the Russians and for the Assad regime in the sense that, you know, there is no real significant challenge to their control and to their power. It's intolerable, of course, for the vast majority of Syrians. You have roughly, I think, I want to say 22 million displaced um, Syrians, about uh, more than half wow. of the pre-war population. Wow. You've got hundreds of thousands of people k- missing Killed, forcibly disappeared. There's a 90% poverty rate in the country. Um, about, I want to say, I think several million. I, I think the, I want to say about 15 million dependent on aid. I can't remember if that's exactly right. So it, it's just, it is, it is, it is a. It is not really a country anymore. I would say it's more sort of the the Assad regime and um, the people that are, of course, unable to escape the Assad regime. It's really a pretty grim uh, situation.
2: So so how on earth could Vladimir Putin and and Assad see this as success?
0: Well, it's success in that, again, there's no threat. to them in this, in this particular area. So there, although the United States has, you know, resisted some of the, um, the tentative normalization of Assad that has gone on, um, we, have, we don't have the same level of commitment to our allies in Syria that Putin has to Assad, if that makes sense. There's a differential in terms of, um, of how much skin we have in the game. So, so they... There's just no it's very hard to envision a situation in which the United States or other Western allies disrupts the current status quo. And the current status quo is that is that Putin and Assad are are in control. And that is their um, that's their vision of success.
2: And, And what does Putin gain from this? um i'm sure
0: that there's a great deal of of income generated for him and the oligarchs off of some of these illegal trades i mentioned okay. i'm sure also there is and there is as you know zachary's question brought up this broader vision of of russia as an imperial power and a, a sort of um fulfilling its duties in terms of being a world power so Assad is a is a very loyal ally to um to putin there's also by the way uh a, recently, Putin has suggested that he would permit up to about, I want to say, 40,000 Syrians to come fight in Ukraine. So I mentioned that 90 percent poverty rate. <laughs> and that is forcing a lot of uh, Syrians to and to come and fight in Russia, excuse me, in Ukraine. Um, ooh, and. Uh, and so we've there's only a few thousand now, but um, it's likely that there will be more working with the Russian army and with the Wagner group and other mercenary groups. Um, so you will see more Syrians coming to fight in Ukraine, I believe. So that is also a source of course, um, of success for, for Putin, fortunately.
2: This is a grim story you're you're describing for us, but but you're painting a a picture of of what is happening on the ground and has been happening for upwards of seven years uh, now, and it's important we recognize mm-hmm. this, and and it's it, it's it's something we need to grapple with in and of itself, yeah. but it gains. Even greater urgency, I think, for uh, citizens of the United States and other parts of the world who care about what's happening in Ukraine, because as both you and Zachary have said, in some ways this is a, a precursor to what we're seeing um, mm-hmm. in Ukraine now and what we're likely to see in coming days and weeks. As, as you pointed yes. out, Emily, General Alexander Dvonikov, who has been appointed in, uh, recently by Putin as the commander of Russian forces in Ukraine, he -hmm. is responsible for what you've just described. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so as an expert on Syria and the Middle East who has watched what you've described so closely, you were even there months ago, um, how do you view what you're seeing in Ukraine?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is, as you point out, Zornikov's um, appointment is very concerning. It coincided with an attack on um, a train station that targeted Ukrainian refugees. So it's a hint of, I think, that it's a suggestion that, that Putin and his generals are really going to play out the Syria playbook in Ukraine. Um, so. It's, yeah, it's it's concerning and it's upsetting. And, and I think that you could see, again, a sort of tolerable solution for Russia in this, in Ukraine would be something similar to to uh, Syria, where you have a de facto partitioned state with a weakened kind of rump state, perhaps under Zelensky's control um, in the West, but that um, Putin can sort of act with impunity in the East. I hope that I'm wrong. <laughs> and I would say one thing that's different about Ukraine is that Syria did come before it, and that there is enormous um, you know, people can recognize that. And although Syria often gets forgotten, the people who still pay attention to Syria, and quite a number of Syrians themselves, are actually reaching out to help their um, to help citizens in Ukraine resist the Russian invasion and um, and to and to fight against uh, to Putin's forces. So there is some, you know, although this looks very similar to Syria. There is, you know, I have a little bit of hope that it will not play out in exactly the same way. There's also a much more robust international response this time around, um, which is, you know, actually hopeful also for Syrians. A lot of Syrians are very um, are hopeful that if Russia is held to accountability for what it's done in Ukraine someday, that that will set a precedent for um, Russia and for, uh, for Putin and Assad to be held accountable uh, for what has happened in Syria.
2: But so far have you seen what looked to you as a, as a historian as some of the same behaviors in Ukraine?
0: Yes. Yeah. And and I think you have to also remember that a lot of these are the same people. So there's an entire generation of Russian military officers who cut their teeth um, in Syria. Now, you know, that's been going on for quite some time. And so that, so they're enacting the same kind of practices and they're approaching these battles in this, in a similar way. The, Material difference, of course, is that you have um, a much more, a much stronger. Uh, you have you have things like artillery in um, in Ukraine that you did not ha- you do not have in Syria. So there's a little bit more of the weight of the Russian army being unleashed in Ukraine that we didn't see quite so overtly in Syria. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question.
2: It, it certainly does, and of course, yeah. there's the the Ukrainians are being far better armed. Uh, by external actors and by themselves Mm -hmm. than than the Syrian resistance was. But I I, I can't think of a better example, Emily, of why understanding, in this case, recent history is so important. What I hear Mm -hmm. you saying is that if we want to understand and anticipate Russian behavior, Mm -hmm. uh, what we need to do is not think of Russia operating as a mirror image of our own militaries, which have their own problems, by the way, Yes. But instead, as following a pattern of behavior and learned experience Mm -hmm. that reflects what you've described in Syria.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I I would say that the international response is an important part of that. Um, There was not, there was not, there was a significant international outcry. as, as war crimes became revealed in Syria, but not much happened. Um, and so it's, you can see how someone watching that would assume that, okay, well, we're going to sort of unfold the same playbook in Ukraine and that there, there won't be, and maybe there'll be an outcry, but there won't be much Um much behind that and so i think this is why it's of critical importance that the the international system come together and um really actually commit commit in a in a significant way to resisting the russian um the russian push in ukraine
2: and so that that leads naturally into my next question what based on your in-depth knowledge of the events in syria what do you think that those who are interested in helping the ukrainians maybe too late for the syrians but at least helping the ukrainians what sh- what lessons should we take for resistance to russian brutality
0: yeah um and i actually i would say i i hope that it's not too late for syrians you know there are still many syrians who perhaps um you know they're living they're perhaps not living in syria at the moment but that um have really taken uh Taken on the lead actually in, in helping Ukrainians with this. There's something called the Syria Ukraine Network, which is um, led by a group of Syrians who are giving advice and, and practi- best practice sharing and things like that to Ukrainians in Russia. Things like teaching them how to build underground hospitals to treat people who have been, um, you know, people who have been injured and things like that. Um, I think what we can do, um, our biggest lessons that we can sort of take away is that, um, that words are very cheap. It sounds kind of trite, but um, that there's real, you know, that it, there's political posturing and then there's actually doing something. So this is a moment where real political courage is needed. I think the other lesson would that I would take away from it would be, you know, maybe more of a question and the question I would ask is what kind of international system do we want to have? And to me, the the that really comes down to we can kind of I think that a lot of times American foreign policy is very reactive. We're interested in preserving a status quo in the in which the United States is powerful. And we view any change to that status quo as a potential threat to American power. And I think that this is a moment where the status quo is changing already. The status quo is you know, has changed. Uh, we will not be able to turn back the clock to pr- to get back to what Syria was in 2010. We will not be able to turn back the clock to get to what Ukraine was last year, even. Um, so then the question becomes: What kind of international system do we want to live in now? And how do we best um, how do we make that system? And and what do we what do we do actively to to make that system work? Yeah.
1: That's what I would say. What about what about? Uh, I think you you hinted at this a little bit, but what about the the parallels between the sort of di- diasporic uh, communities that, that that we're seeing now of Ukrainians, particularly in Poland and in other parts of Eastern Europe? I mean, uh, it, it's hard not uh, it's hard not to to notice the irony that the the Ukrainian refugees who are being welcomed in Poland today are in many ways mm. c- coming the same route coming yeah. the same violence as Syrian refugees who were turned back 10 years before.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I would actually, you know, there were actually stories um, of Syrian refugees who have lived in, you know, Romania and, and Poland and who, who came to the borders, actually, to help welcome Ukrainian refugees. <laughs> um, so even these people who have, you know, for the most part, been kind of abandoned by Europe are still really, they see solidarity with Ukrainians. Um, And yeah, it is. You know, it's a reminder that the problem of refugees. A lot of people were saying this during during the Syrian war, and um, that you know, refugees are that it's sort of it's not a a feature of a particular region of the world. Although we have seen more Middle Eastern refugees um, in recent years. That it doesn't take much for refugees to exist to, to, to originate from outside the middle east and you're seeing that now in ukraine um obviously ukrainian refugees are getting a much warmer welcome and it's frustrating <laughs> um but you have to also keep in mind the broader context that um i think the way that you know things get covered in the media we were still learning in the in 2015 and 2016 really about what you know disinformation and fake news and things like that were um capable of how how they were capable of shaping the the um the media coverage so you know i don't want to give people a pass but i think i'm hesitant to say um I think that we should be welcoming refugees, whether they're Syrian or Ukrainian. And I think um, at least there's a little bit of a conversation started about that. You know, other people are noticing, okay, there's a big difference in the way that these Ukrainian refugees are treated and the Syrian refugees are treated. Um, So while the response is not perfect, there's at least a conversation going on. So my hope is that in the future we'll be a little more consistent.
2: That's a very sensible perspective, and it, it, yeah. it, it's it's terrible to see, and it's a topic we talk about quite often on this podcast, it's terrible to see how racial prejudice continues to mm-hmm. um, influence the way people make judgments about life and death, quite frankly. But yeah. it, it is also heartening to see Ukrainian refugees being uh, welcomed, and it is heartening to see that at least there's a conversation beginning, as you say, about the disjunction between the way we treated Syrian refugees and now Ukrainian refugees. Um, Mm -hmm. Emily, uh, uh, coming back to where we were a second ago, as you know, we like to always close on an optimistic note, and this is a very grim story we're discussing (laughs) tonight, but um, there is the opportunity for our democracy, and I mean broadly American democracy, European democracy, democracies in various parts of the world, there's an opportunity for democracy to learn. Learn from the tragedy of recent years, learn from the mistakes of the past. Uh, that's one of the strengths and possibilities of democracy. Uh, what is it that we should have learned from Syria when we think about Russia today? I, I know you you are a critic appropriately and compellingly of uh, the excessive use of American force and the American frequent refrain that we will save the world by imposing ourselves upon it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the last thing I know you would argue for would be an American-led military intervention to correct the wrongs of Russia. Uh, Nonetheless, you clearly think we need to do certain things and we are a society and our allies have capabilities as our society does. So, Mm -hmm. so what should we do? And in particular, what should our listeners be encouraging our society and fellow democracies to do in this grim moment as you, as you've described it?
0: Yeah. Well, you know uh, you, I think accurately assessed the uncomfortable position I put myself in where I don't think that, um, you know, I think that there's, There's military intervention and there's military intervention. You know, I think there's a way to intervene or contribute to the war effort in Ukraine without coming in with the full weight of the American military and sort of imposing an American envisioned solution. So I think the first thing that we need to do is listen to Ukrainians, listen to what they need from us, from a material standpoint, from a strategic standpoint. And then try to give that to them. (laughs) It sounds very simple, but, you know, this was something that was, you know, I was in Jordan in 2013 when, um, when there was a real possibility of American response, American involvement in the Syrian war. And people were very agonized in Jordan about, you know, whether or not the United States should intervene militarily because their memory, of course, of the Afghanistan and the Iraq wars was so fresh. At the same time, there's a long scale of involvement and of real commitment that goes, you know, there's a, there's a wide spectrum. That's kind of what the word I'm looking for, a wide spectrum from, you know, saying a bunch of things and not doing anything to full bore um, invasion like we saw in Iraq in 2003. And far be it from me <laughs> to say what the right thing to do is, but I think the, the first step has always got to be listen to the people who are suffering right now. And take them at their word for what they actually need from us. And I think, um, you know, what I would say for people to encourage their um, representatives to do and to, to think about in terms of response, um, that's a tough question. I think, you know, again, that kind of very astute question at the beginning where I think that the parallels, I've been thinking often of the parallels to the, to the um, Spanish Civil War. And that that was a real moment for the international system to understand what was coming. Um, and I think we need to understand that Ukraine is not an exception. Syria is not an exception. These are indic- indicators of a, of, of a one man's very um, dangerous worldview. And I think we need to think very long and hard about what we do with that.
2: Zachary, I know you've been struggling over this. You've you've actually been uh, emotionally touched, as many of us have, and I think as many of your contemporaries have, Zachary, and your poem uh, reflected that. Uh, what do you think we should be doing? And has Emily's um, discussion of listening to the Ukrainians, does that give you a way to think about this?
1: I think so. I think it's easy to either forget about Ukraine now after the – the sort of outpouring of emotional support from Americans, the sort of Ukrainian flags that you still see all over the country, I think I think it's easy after a month of of doing that to to, to forget or or to focus mm-hmm. on other things. But at the same time, it's also easy to become sort of to to, to desensitized to what's going on and forget the actual human suffering involved. So I think we do have to listen. We have to make sure we're in tune with the actual human suffering. That is going on on the ground on a daily basis, and we also have to be aware that it's not—it's not going to be contained to Ukraine simply by virtue of of us being thousands of miles away. It affects mm-hmm. us every time the 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 laws and norms of international behavior are broken and in, in such an egregious way. Right. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Well, I think uh, this discussion has opened so many avenues for understanding and empathy and, at the very least, um, rethinking some of our assumptions. Uh, Emily and Zachary, I think you both shared with us ways in which we should recognize that there are no easy solutions, that there are patterns of behavior that are very difficult to break, very difficult Mm -hmm. to stop, and that um, maybe the best we can do is to at least start by forcing ourselves to understand and open our eyes and see what's happening, that there's a humanity in recognizing, acknowledging and trying to respond by listening to those on the ground who are suffering in this way. And and I think your, your perspective, Emily, I don't think it offers any easy solutions, but it, but it at least humanizes, uh, the conflict. And and I think that's important. I think that's part of your aim, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. And I actually would say, I think what you said, you know, um, you know, there are no easy solutions. That is something that, that we can do as individuals every day is really resist the easy story, resist, um, resist the, the easy narrative, if that makes sense, the simple narrative. And when we see simple narratives, be a little skeptical towards it. Um, And that will, I think, go a long way towards sort of opening our minds to what comes next.
2: Right. Simple narratives of forgetting, as Zachary said, or simple narratives of our own self-righteousness, both of which uh, we need to work our way past. So I want to do something now to close that we don't often do, but I think uh, Zachary's poem was so powerful and so appropriate, Emily, for so many of the really thoughtful, uh, uniquely informed insights that you shared with us. Zachary, I want to ask you to read the last four lines, the end of your poem, one more time to close us out, if you would.
1: Where is it that the killers learn to kill so cold? In the streets of your city, they have overturned the stones. They have opened all the sewers just outside your door. And here in our town, we're already buried because we've seen it all before.
2: And Emily, I want to give you the last words to close us out.
0: Yeah, um, you know, Zach, I just thought of it as, as you're reading the last bit of your poem of a, another poem written by a great Lebanese poet, Etel Adnan, and um, she wrote it and the the title is, It Was Beirut All Over Again. And she wrote it thinking about um, the conflict in El Salvador in the 1980s and how it reminded her of um, the war that was still ongoing in Beirut at the time. So I think that that's a good reminder that these things do not stop at borders.
2: Right. And we study history, so at least we give ourselves the opportunity to learn and not just revisit the same tragedy again and again as if it's it's something we're not prepared for, right? Absolutely. Emily, thank you so much. Uh, I want to again encourage our listeners to look up uh, the the voluminous work of Emily Whalen. Uh, She is really writing some of the most interesting uh, work on the Middle East today and its relevance for the larger international community. And she will be writing a lot more, I know, so everyone can can keep an eye out for her work. And uh, of course, I want to thank uh, our podcast poet and co-producer, Zachary Suri. And most of all, I want to thank our listeners for uh, joining us each week and for continuing to remain faithful to the aspirations of democracy or what Franklin Roosevelt called the next chapter that we, we are all writing uh, right now. Thank you for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy.